Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In today's conversation, I speak with Dr. Tomas Chamorro Premuzic an author and international authority in psychological profiling, talent management, leadership development, and people analytics. The chief talent scientist at Manpower Group and CEO at Hogan Assessment Systems, Tomas is also the co-founder of Deeper Signals and Meta Profiling. Having published 10 books and over 150 scientific papers on the psychology of talent, leadership, innovation, and AI, Tomas is a professor of business psychology at both University College London and Columbia University. His most recent book, I, Human, AI, Automation and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique, explores the impacts of artificial intelligence on how we work, rest and play. And his previous book, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It, examines why it's so easy for incompetent men to become leaders and why it is so hard for competent people, especially competent women, to advance. He has previously held academic positions at New York University and the London School of Economics, and he has lectured at Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, London Business School, John Hopkins, IMD and INSEAD, among many more. His global academic contributions paired with his creation of science-based tools to improve performance prediction in organisations make him one of the most prolific social scientists of his generation. Thomas, it's been a while since I've had you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> I know, I know, you know, it required some effort on your behalf because you're so busy. But uh-huh. uh, I'm glad I could find a little window in your busy schedule. So it's the man who's just come back on a three-month book tour, which we're going to dive into specifically because it's connected with AI. Okay. Um, but before we reach your book... I want to ask you the question I usually open the conversation with, which is what do you think is going on in the global human psyche right now, if we use that frame? Ah, yes. I think global psyche, human right now, obviously a lot of concern and excitement and discussion on what this new phase of AI and automation will do, whether it will, you know, render us irrelevant or enhance us or... I think a lot of people feel the need to reaffirm their own intellectual superiority (laughs) vis-a-vis machines. And then, I mean, I definitely have a proximity bias here because this morning I was listening to my usual BBC podcast, which was all about the UN reports on Mm. the new reports on climate change. And so I think that's obviously still top of mind for a lot of people. And otherwise, I think, you know, dealing with... uh, Obviously, Ukraine, Russia, and generally unpopular governments um, in most places around the world. So that's, I think, you know, the state of affairs, current state of affairs. Mm. And it feels like there's a huge amount of disruption on pretty much all fronts um, 
So the main theme that I'm exploring in this season, which is season 10, is how we can reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. And so one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you, which is perfect in terms of timing, is because you've just published a really fascinating book with Harvard Business Review Press called I Human, AI, Automation and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. Broadly speaking, it explores whether we can reclaim our humanity to display our most kind of virtuous sides and avoid being either alienated or dehumanized or maybe simplified and automated by technology. So what made you write the book? And then I have some questions about specific themes within the book. Yes. Well, the book, this project, uh, or, you know, I would say the original idea for this book started in, um, I would say, January 2020, mm-hmm. when uh, my publisher, Harvard Review Press, asked me to do a new book, you know, after the success of the previous one, which was, is Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? Yeah. And which was kind of like a double-edged sword because it was very difficult and I didn't want to do a, a sequel, right? Why do so many incompetent men still become leaders? <laughs> And how we weren't able to fix it would have been a little bit depressing. Um, And that book was relatively recent still. I mean, it was published in 2019. Mm. So we wanted to do something completely different. And the original brief was quite philosophical. Um, We had kind of landed on a book about how to be human in today's age. And, you know, that was January 2020. So obviously a couple of months after that, the world collapsed. Mm. Um, Not that I would have been able to do a book about the pandemic and COVID, which luckily I didn't want to do because we're hitting on a moving target and everything was changing so fast. But what wasn't changing is the everyday disconnect from real people and the real world. So I think much like most people or everybody else, and especially those of us who have been lucky to remain productive because we were able to work remotely or do our stuff in digital or virtual environments or tools, I did find myself under the heavy influence of AI, spending most of my time or hours sort of uh, influenced by all these algorithms and algorithmic nudges and, you know, uh, suffering from all the things I then decided to discuss in the book. So, you know, there's a little bit of the original idea left because if you think about how to be human today or what the best way is to displace our humanity, you have to think about what our times actually are. And I think AI is not just the defining technology of today, but also the age in which we're living at. This is kind of like the a phase of the fourth industrial revolution or of the digital age that is predominantly characterized by the ascent or the rise of AI and machines. Mm. And I didn't want to do a book about AI. I wanted to do a book about the human impact of the AI age. I'm a psychologist, as you know, so I'm interested in basically how AI, in whichever way we define it, is impacting on human behavior. And so let's think about, I mean, everyone has a different kind of perspective on what AI broadly refers to. And I'm particularly captivated. One of the quotes that you included in the book was by Pamela Pavlisak. We design tech and tech in turn designs us, which is a fundamental concept. It's like the idea of, you know, the user being being shaped by whatever they're using. 
And so when you're writing about AI and its impact on us psychologically, culturally, what kind of working definition are you are you using? So I'm operating under the assumption that in most kind of uh, spheres of social or interpersonal behavior and most of the ways in which most people are affected or impacted by AI, AI is basically a prediction machine. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's computer code or software that has the ability to identify hidden patterns in very large data sets under or with minimal supervision with a relentless capacity to get better and more and more accurate. And if you like, you know, the, the only twist that I put in when I think about definitions of AI, because prediction machine is used, you know, widely or broadly by economists. But for me, it's, you can also think about it as computer code that is actually designed to make humans more predictable, hmm. because it's always easier to predict something if that thing is more predictable. I mean, this applies to friends. You know, we all have some <laughs> friends who are really creatures of habit yeah, yeah. and are very routine prone, almost sometimes a little bit OCD and uh, like Jack Nicholson in that movie, right? As good as it gets. <laughs> he will be very predictable because if he changes a, one tiny thing of his daily rituals, he freaks out. Mm. And so his waiter is very very capable of predicting where he wants to sit and what he wants to do. So, you know, that's the predictable. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have people who constantly change very and live a very sort of open-minded and creative uh, enriching experience. Most people think they're in that land, that second <laughs> kind of a latter path, but actually we're somewhere in the middle and what I'm arguing in the book is that the AI age through the algorithms that monetize the accuracy of their prediction are pushing us to the Jack Nicholson end of the spectrum. Fascinating and also quite concerning. And one of the things that you talk about when you're talking about the AI age that we're now entering into, um, you mentioned the fourth industrial revolution earlier, is that this is a significant phase in human evolution that we're now participating in and that it has three enablers. So a hyper-connected world, the datafication of you and the lucrative business of prediction. Can you talk us through what those three enablers are and what it means for how we live? Yep, hyperconnectedness is the fact that, you know, we are more connected than ever to each other, to other people, to other things, to information. Um, with that comes the second one, that throughout these connections and the more time we spend on our devices, which, for example, in the UK and the US is about six hours per day. So the average human today is expected to spend 21 years of their life looking at their smartphone or screen mm. or a combination of those, right? So 21 years. That obviously leads to the second one because it generates a lot of data. Um, I think for a lot of the kind of earlier part of the social media uh, explosion, People talked a lot about humans being sort of the product of social media platforms, mm. but we're more like a vessel that is being mined and that produces data. That data that we produce is actually what fuels the algorithms that make up AI without the attention that these platforms grab and that connect us to each other and other things. There is no data and without data, there is no AI. And that leads to the three enabler, which is once you have a lot of data, 
um, with some basic data science, you know, algorithms can make better and better predictions about what we do, what we want, what we think, how we behave. And so that's a lucrative business of prediction. You know, you may have seen three or four weeks ago when Google tried to launch unsuccessfully a rival to ChatGPT. It lost a hundred billion in market cap. That's just mm. for, you know, basically conveying the message that actually their AI was not as good as open AIs. <laughs> so a hundred billion, you know, that's more than the vast majority of the most successful and biggest companies in the world. That's just through an unsuccessful launch of a single product. So these are the three things that actually make the AI age possible and that justify all of the attention and economic interests and, of course, the market cap of the five big tech firms that actually rely on AI um, to sell services, content, media, et cetera, and information to others. And it's crazy that it has that large of an impact on the world economy. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's kind of adding extra tumult to the whole system. And you mentioned briefly there that the fact that it's narrowing the range of behaviours we might engage in through making our actions and decisions perhaps more predictable. And so that's, that, that sense of AI being able to shape the way that we think, the way that we learn, the way that we make decisions, what we're exposed to, what we engage with. Um, and one of the quotes from your book, you were talking about how by constructing and constraining a range of behaviours, we have advanced the predictive accuracy of AI and reduced our complexity as a species. I mean, that's really a powerful concern to put into words. What do you think are some of the ways in which we can reclaim the richness and complexity of the human life world? Well, you know, they're quite obvious, Natalie, but one, spend a little bit less time online. Two, relatedly, visit this thing called the real world. It's still <laughs> out there and uh, you know, not frequently visited by others, but you know we can all start and there are pockets of activity there that might still be of interest. Three, try not to become a robot. Hmm. That's one of the main arguments of the book, right? That we were worrying so much about the rise of AI, the automation of jobs and skills and uh, uh, tasks. And in the process, we kind of automated ourselves um, so in this race where machines are becoming more human-like, we also unfortunately have humans becoming more like machines. Because when we are optimizing the world for AI and for the precision or standardization of the algorithms, we actually squeeze out a lot of the creativity and richness that have historically characterized the human species. Um, and I would say a simple thing that you can do is, you know, really find ways in which you can actually fool AI <laughs> every time that there is an unsuccessful and inaccurate recommendation that algorithms make on either Netflix, Spotify, you know, Amazon, whatever you use, Twitter, of course, and LinkedIn, you should feel some, you know, pride that actually the algorithms have a very inaccurate or invalid model of your personality or that there is more to you, to the essence of you, than AI actually thinks or knows. So that whole thing of being able to plumb the complexity and the depths of the human psyche that, you know, as a psychologist, this is what you're dedicating your, your life's work to. And yet there is still so much more to be discovered. Correct. And I think a lot of the blame that is basically placed on AI should actually be placed on ourselves, right? Let's say that Netflix or Spotify decided to 
pilot or try an algorithm to make their listeners or their viewers more open-minded hmm. and say, hey, Tomas, you know, your playlist is very middle-aged white male, so we're going to feed you <laughs> some Gen Z hip-hop or electronic <laughs> dance music. I mean, I would, of course, ask for a refund and quit that <laughs> service <laughs> streaming platform immediately and feel offended, right? Same for movies and same... Mm. I'm sure you followed these interesting experiments that have been done by the BBC and others where they expose people to news outside their filter mm. bubbles or their echo chamber for one or two weeks. I do that myself all the time, you know, so when I'm traveling, I'm always tuning into a channel that will really irritate me. It's a very masochistic <laughs> experience, but actually... Sometimes I find it does make me a little bit more op open-minded or at least more empathetic with people who don't think like myself, you know. We all see ourselves as open-minded and we define open-minded people as those who agree with us, you know, which is, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it's uh, quite self-evident, I think, that mm -hmm. uh, uh, we're all sort of prisoners of this uh, self-enhancing or narcissistic delusion. So speaking about narcissism, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is around digital narcissism, what it is, why it seems to be augmenting. Can you speak a bit to that as well? Yeah, so, um, you know, AI primarily lives in platforms, social media platforms. I mean, that's the main interaction that most people have with AI and how they're influenced by it. These, contrary to popular belief, these social media platform, whether it's TikTok now or Instagram before or Facebook before that or MySpace before, they mm -hmm. didn't invent narcissism or make, made us more narcissistic. Narcissism has been rising uh, in Western societies and increasingly in the Eastern world for at least five and sometimes ten decades, right? Mm -hmm. So it has been on the rise. But what these platforms, especially the algorithms that inhabit it, have them have uh, done very well is co-opting and lubricating or enhancing our narcissism um, through rewarding shameless attempts or efforts at self-promotion, self-centeredness, um, you know, fake positive feedback from others when we do that, and inappropriate self-disclosure, which is in stark contrast with how we behave in the real world or in the analog world still today, right? If you, for those of our listeners who still visit an office, you know, <laughs> that old thing, a 3D building environment where they can interact with colleagues in the real world, in a real world office, for example, a working environment. If you walk around the office only talking about yourself and how great you are and telling everything what you did on the weekend and what your cat had for breakfast <laughs> and you don't listen to others and you interrupt them and you are constantly seeking praise and validations. People will think that you're obnoxious and pathetic, but in the digital world, in the AI age and in digital virtual environments such as social platforms, you'll be an influencer and you gain lots of brownie points and positive approval. So there's something called Broadcast intoxication, which is a really interesting psychological variable, which is when our self and our self-concept or self-esteem becomes dependent on the feedback that we get on these social media platforms. And of course, we've seen studies that have shown very clearly that the more narcissistic you are, the more hours you end up spending on these platforms, and the more narcissistic you become in turn. And also that even very trivial and superficial uh, events like having one of your connections 
unfriend you on Facebook or leave you or, you know, kind of disconnect with you on LinkedIn can actually cause anxiety and depression. I mean, that's just bonkers. I was listening to an interview between Nate Hagens and Jonathan Haidt on the Great Simplification podcast, which is a brilliant podcast. And one of the things they were talking about was this hockey stick curve, this extreme and rapid acceleration of mental health crises among Gen Z predominantly around the year 2012 and relating that to social media use, kind of this conjunction between smartphones being available to a wider group of people and social media platforms being much more established and integrated and the ease with which people could access this kind of content and these sorts of persuasive platforms has been kind of widely cited as one of the reasons that this generation is so fragile or unable to be resilient in the face of um, things that might find offensive or emotionally difficult or challenging. And there's a whole raft of research looking at what we do to support this generation to kind of develop a sense of grit and self-esteem that is less fragile and more able to withstand the difficulties of everyday human life. Yep. What are your thoughts around how AI connects with that? Like, can we put some sort of, maybe it's to do with training data or ethics, what can we do to create an AI future that supports people to flourish as opposed to undermining people and their self-esteem and well-being? So that then we just become kind of even more fixed in this idea of like being the vessel through which data is served to these companies and that's how they monetize us. Like how do we get out of the human farm situation? Look, a simple way to do this would be to audit and regulate or govern the algorithms that exist in these platforms. Because actually the problem really centers around using AI as a self-enhancement tool. Right. So, I mean, that's basically how it is. the way to make these platforms sticky and to get people to come back and spend a lot of time there is to provide them with really positive, fake, artificial, you know, feedback on everything they do. Mm -hmm. And that starts with just feeding them uh, content or news or information that is congruent with their views, you know, the human tendency to prefer information that makes us feel smart rather than makes us understand the world was there all the time. It's inherently human and we, we are designed in that way to be biased by design. But when you have algorithms that, you know, prey on that bias and co-opt those instincts, it's like throwing gasoline to the fire, really. And the same for, you know, only showing us approval signs from others and making it very easy for others to send us a uh, heart or thumbs up or smiley emojis, you know, you are potentially creating a whole generation of people that are living in La La Land mm. and who think that, you know, and we're, we haven't even really entered the metaverse. Imagine when that happens as well. So, I mean, I think Jonathan Hyde and others and people who have researched this area are right when they talk about, you know, whether it's the coddling of the American mind or people in general or how the suppression of adversity will create people who are very soft and not resilient, which, by the way, I think explains why we have been promoting and kind of talking about worshiping resilience for 
at least a decade now mm. because it's becoming more and more scarce more and more rare and the same goes for humility right <laughs> we say oh wouldn't it be nice if people were humble especially leaders it's like well that's because what is being rewarded and promoted is actually shameless self-promotion or narcissism yeah, it's quite brutal. I mean, one of the things I thought was really interesting about how we can mitigate these impacts that you write about in the book is this weird thing that happens when we force ourselves to behave in pro-social or kind ways towards others. And that even this kind of fake it till you make it approach has been shown to positively impact mood, self-concept, makes us more open-minded. And the fact that random acts of kindness, if we instill these or reward these in a population, also has the ability to boost our empathy and our altruism. So there are tried and tested methods for shifting how people relate to others, conceive of themselves, and then behave in ways that are perhaps antithetical to kind of the, you know, the cancel culture that we're seeing proliferate across social channels. Yeah, and so absolutely. And I think, you know, since we talked about kind of how governments or entities or watchdogs, etc., can regulate some of this. Let's not forget that humans can self-regulate. <laughs> we are capable of self-regulating. I mean, my main goal with this book is to make people self-aware of the problematic behaviors that are there, which, by the way, you know, skeptics might say, oh, you know, we have a long history of blaming technology for our own cultural demise. I mean, this happened, you know, at every single point in time when something was invented, and, you know, whether it is the newspapers and the idea that they would kill gossip or Socrates and his fellow Greek philosophers didn't want to write anything down because that technology, writing things down, would kind of diminish or undermine memory. And, of course, with the rise of TV, etc., we've been calling it the opium of the people for a while. But I don't think that a natural kind of a underreaction is necessarily better than a natural or default overreaction. And again, you know, uh, if you think about the rise of fast food leading to obesity or how long it took us to understand the negative impact of smoking and how many lives would have been saved if that, I mean, and we are now unable to see the impact that all of this is having on the brain. But it's, you know, not unfeasible mm -hmm. that in 20 or 30 years we have brain scans that reveal what happens to a brain when it's spending 14 hours on TikTok or 20 hours in the metaverse or gambling, etc. So I think we can self-regulate and that happens or starts at the individual level. But you can also see successful efforts or attempts in recent history of how this happens at the social level, right? So... Fast food might be very convenient and a cheap way for people to get fat and get their food delivered without spending too much money or learning how to cook. But it has also given us slow food and farm to table and made people more conscious about, you know, exercising self-control and restraint when uh, choosing their uh, dietary habits, etc. And the same goes for, you know, being overly sedentary because we have the cars or we can work from everywhere and then people actually mm -hmm. making an effort to exercise. And be... So I think we need to find the intellectual equivalent. Maybe ChatGPT is like fast food and then we have to ensure that we can still find the slow food equivalent I'm not saying we should all become poems, but maybe spend a little bit of time displaying some curiosity and engaging in critical thinking is mm. a starting point. The other thing that you mentioned in your book, which connects with the critical thinking, I think also is a quote or an idea that you, that you cited from Gregory Robson from Iowa State Uni. He says that the consequence of sensory overstimulation is often intellectual understimulation. 
And I wonder with this, you know, if we're completely mesmerized and captivated by our feeds, you know, I spend maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes in the evening looking on my Instagram feed for things that I've shared to my partner during the day. Like it's mostly just animals and funny memes. That's how I've trained the algorithm. But I don't do it in the rest of the day because it completely hijacks my ability to focus, to concentrate. I end up self-interrupting more and all this kind of stuff that we know about through the research of how we, we interrupt our ability to focus. But one of the things that's really curious is that there's something around um, the addictiveness of these sorts of platforms that makes the self-regulation much harder. And I think there's something also about having the time and space to cultivate the ability to focus so that that overstimulation is maybe bounded and we're able to think deeply, to reflect. And I'm wondering also if that that kind of tendency has to be reinforced or is best when it's reinforced by collective decision-making. So for instance, I, I run a couple of different salons where phones are not included in the mix and you're there for three, four, five hours eating great food, drinking good wine with your friends until whatever time you finish, but you're sort of centred on one particular conversation, one theme and you dive deep. That's not really that possible online. I mean, there are areas where you can find it like a good deep Reddit thread or what have you, but these are the exception rather than the norms. So when it comes to self-regulation, what are some of the things that we can do to make decisions that are perhaps more healthy for us and for the groups to which we belong? Well, I think, you know, it, it's always easier to commit to these changes when you are part of a group and when you're not, you know, going at it alone, basically. Uh, I think the examples you gave uh, were good ones, you know. People generally underestimate the uh, impact of <laughs> multitasking. Um, you know, we, it's, it's, a, it's basically a myth, right? So we all think we're being more productive because, and you would have seen in the chapter on attention that I talk about how many screens <laughs> I have open. And I just opened my second screen, by the way, to read some, some stats that I highlighted <laughs> from the book, right? Which I, I don't memorize. But yeah, I mean, you need to kind of, uh, I think you need to force certain analog routines mm -hmm. because that's the only way to resist this you know i mean a simple example that applies to myself you know i prefer like you to read physical 3d analog books but when you travel a lot and you read a lot of things at the same time etc you know it's i end up doing it in my ipad yeah but i never put my ipad on wi-fi because if i do it's the end of it right i'll be able to do a page or so. But what's interesting, look, I have just a few stats that I want to highlight, right? Because knowledge workers, which represents 60% of the US and the UK economy, waste 25% of their time on digital distractions, which is very interesting because, you know, we've been wondering and kind of puzzling about why productivity hasn't increased hmm. At the pace where we have all these apps and machines and tools to do our work, and it's actually peaked when social media became started to take off and become ubiquitous, and then it kind of stagnates and went down. Seventy percent of workers anywhere, and especially within the knowledge economy, report productivity drops. Seventy-five percent of phone use happens during work, but is not for work. <laughs> 40% of people check their phone during the night, no. so they interrupt their sleep to check their phone. And the productivity loss in the US alone has been estimated at $650 billion a year. That's 15 times higher than the productivity loss due to sickness and health leave. 
And I love, you're going to like the statistic, multitasking deducts the equivalent of 10 IQ points from your, you know, performance on cognitive tasks, etc., which is apparently twice as large as smoking weed, <laughs> which, which I'm sure some of our listeners would agree is somewhat more enjoyable yeah. than multitasking. <laughs> So just close your tabs, have a joint, focus yeah, for an hour, get your work exactly, done. Exactly. Fun. So there's the answer, right? <laughs> but it's bonkers. I mean, I remember back in 2011, was it? I think it might have been around that time, Nicholas Carr wrote this book called The Shallows, which oh, yes. predicted Brilliant. all of these issues. And yep. it's still hyper relevant today. But also in connection with what you just said, you also talked about in the book how AI-based internet platforms tend to fuel ADHD-like symptoms, like impulsivity attention deficit, restless hyperactivity, and that this this knowledge that we can just access whatever we want, whenever we want, as long as we've got obviously Wi-Fi, means that we tend to just search for things impulsively when we need to, which does indeed impair long-term knowledge acquisition and our ability to recall where our facts came from. So there's, there's really something quite um, fragmenting mm-hmm. about our access to constant information. Yep. And I wonder with that sort of side of things as well, I mean, something that we haven't yet touched upon, which I would like to touch upon, is the importance of how we choose to relate intentionally with our technology, whether that's how we use it as the end user, how we design for it, how we legislate for it, that creates a society in which we are supporting more life-affirming pro-social behaviours and mitigating our less helpful tendencies. Now, obviously, our perception of what's good and bad depends on our political perspective, our religious affiliation, cultural context, etc. And obviously, it's varied depending on who you ask. But what do you think we can do theoretically and also sort of in a practical way to use AI to create more flourishing futures for people? Mm -hmm. Well, this is a great question. And I think, again, I think regulating the negative impacts, because it's no different. I mean, you know, if... If it's leading to depression, anxiety, ADHD, performance detriments, which are important, obviously, not just for individuals' careers, but also at the macroeconomic level, I mean, it's no different than regulating other things that are harmful and toxic or problematic, right? I mean, it's exactly the same. So I think, well, it speaks to the strength and power of big tech that it, this still hasn't happened. Although I think there is a tendency in Europe for sure, and it's getting there in the US, you know, to protect users and consumers and at least mitigate the negative aspects. I think we have a long way to go to embrace the positive aspects. And I worry more about how smart and rational people in their unwillingness to accept that we may have created something that can actually create less bias workplaces and societies. And perhaps because we are so proud of our own biases, we don't want to have anything that interferes with our decision making. And I think, you know, I'm a big believer in the potential for AI, for example, to increase fairness and meritocracy in organizations. You know, there are things that are still going on, whether it's unreliable and biased hiring decisions and interviews or bogus attempts to, you know, half-assed attempts to tackle things like diversity inclusion Mm. that require data and big data and AI are a very important weapon to do this, to actually expose biases, mitigate inequality. But of course, 
if every time one of these efforts or attempts goes wrong, it you know it makes the front pages of the Guardian, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. We're actually missing out on the opportunity to utilize some of these tools to actually make decisions that humans are unwilling or incapable of doing. Right. Yeah. So there are instances basically where not having a human in the loop will actually increase fairness and improve the outcome. Same, by the way, if you removed all human drivers for the road and you had self-driving cars that are working okay, we're not so far from that. There, there probably wouldn't be 1.3 million deaths a year courtesy of human driving. But when one self-driving vehicle crashes, we're all shocked and scandalized. <laughs> and you know, we all say the same, that it might be a better driver than other people, but not than ourselves. And so with that, you know, I think we have to be alert and open to the opportunities, but definitely try to mitigate and reduce the risks. There's always pros and cons. Mm. What comes up in my mind when you're talking about that and the, the willingness or lack of willingness you might demonstrate towards designing technology to kind of steer us, it's almost like a parentification of technology to help us live into our better selves, is that it requires really uncomfortable, challenging conversations. And culturally right now in many parts of the world but obviously not in all parts but especially in the west there is a lot of concern in certain areas around our inability to tolerate difference mm -hmm. and i think there's something culturally happening as well at that level that if we don't have a cultural context within which we can respectfully engage in robust discussion of the things that most matter to us the most emotionally poignant conversations we can have around bias um, around any kind of divergence from what we see as ourselves or similar or familiar, we can end up in a, in a situation where we don't have the resources to, or the platforms or the public commons to be able to have proper conversations about what a future that is inclusive, that is flourishing can look like. And so from the cultural perspective, and I'm thinking also here about education and universities and the, the kind of impoverishment of a diversity of opinions, how can we start to create situations or contexts in which people are able to have difficult discussions, to bring themselves in, to question our own beliefs without feeling so threatened that we shut down and we kind of point the finger at the other and, and end up in very... Mm -hmm. <sighs> do you know what I'm trying to get to? <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of animosity. How do we dial down the animosity while opening up to diversity of opinions so that we can actually have meaningful conversations that shift the needle? Well, I think obviously, you know, educating people and providing them with the necessary understanding or information to comprehend how these tools, and especially the AI that is adopted by them, functions, right? I think one of the clear things that uh, this technology does is to basically turn us into a more exaggerated version of ourselves. Mm. And, you know, even if you leave AI aside, I do believe that the most effective and perhaps the only path to self-improvement is to actually become a less exaggerated version of ourselves, you know, to understand how to be more moderate, more rational, and, you know, everything is good in moderation. So if you are, you know, in your political views, in your views of others or other people or in your views of yourself, the more you go into one extreme the more rigid you become and the more intolerant you become. And I think the polarization and tribalization or radicalization that we have seen in attitudes in the past 10, 15 years are definitely fueled by AI. I mean, uh, 
limiting access to information that disproves or disconfirms our beliefs, feeding us information that actually amplifies our biases and turns them into delusional facts. Mm. Um, but, you know, you could teach people to understand the impact. And as you well know, because you have written about this, even simple things like how you personalize or curate or customize your feed can at least try to mitigate some of this radicalization, right? I mean, it's true then that if you become nuanced and sort of moderate and you you probably will have no friends and you'll be left alone. But I mean, we have to start somewhere, right? <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know. Like, it's, it goes back to this analog richness and complexity. I mean, I think some of us prefer to wade in waters that are less... Yeah. Um, confronting. And I go. think some of us, you know, are raised in situations where stress is possibly a baseline that we're familiar with. And maybe there's a tendency there or, you know, need for cognition or openness to experience. There are all these factors and traits that can that can shift us towards a more um, open inclination towards that which is different. So that, there's obviously personal differences there. But I think there's also something about novelty, which I would suggest all humans at the earliest stages of life, we, we possess this curiosity and seeking of novelty. We want to understand and experience our world. Now, how many times does a four-year-old or five-year-old say, but why, but why, but why? It's a, it's a bottomless question that goes on forever. Mm -hmm. And so I think we all have this capacity. And I think one of the questions is, how do we enhance that capacity um, or support that capacity so that it doesn't get lost or stifled? And I think there is something around the positive reinforcement. If you encounter something which is new, and it's gratifying and exciting, that can be a good carrot. It doesn't just have to be the self-regulation and the moderation. That there's, there's beauty and excitement in finding out new things. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's something in that as well. It's not just about the finding stuff you don't like, but also discovering new things that you might. Yeah, I think it's all part of the same kind of a vicious circle, right? Because uh, the more these platforms and tools and AI turns that into sort of the insecure on erotic narcissisms that we are, at least when we're online, the less comfortable we are embracing truths or facts that actually question our intelligence. And then, yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. curiosity is always there, but it can be quite dormant or undernourished mm -hmm. if that hungry mind that is curiosity is only fed fast food. And, you know, and I mean, even now, if your definition of knowledge is spending two seconds on ChatGPT or GPT-4 <laughs> and you assume that what it turns out actually enables you to mansplain something or pretend that you know something and actually makes you feel that you know, then, then you have a problem. But maybe you're onto something. Maybe analog people will be confined to, um, or the nuanced people will be confined to the analog world. We should Maybe start the analog club of nuanced people. Is there an acronym that uh, that, that can be catchier than Let's that? And see if there's anybody signing up. <laughs> so I think, I mean, there's there's two other things I want to ask you about. One is about how do we future-proof, well, we can go in any direction. Like, what are the qualities that are specific and sacred to humans that we need to be mindful of and cultivate? Mm -hmm. So I would think things like you already mentioned, humility, curiosity, aiming for a life of greater diversity, all of this sort of stuff. So that's one question is around those qualities that are perhaps unique and sacred to humans. And another that I'm going to ask you in a bit is about um, synthetic relationships and social engineering. But Ooh. let's first talk about, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, are you going to ask me if I had some or have some right now? Okay, we'll get to that one in, 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 on the synthetic <laughs> one later. But on the first one, yeah, I mean, there's four qualities that I highlight in the book, and they are self-awareness, 
humility, empathy, and I forgot the fourth one. Curiosity, learnability. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, yeah, Curiosity. <laughs> See, you read it and I kind of wrote it but didn't read it. Yeah, but, you know, and, it, and let's stay with this. I mean, because in a way I'm highlighting these because they are the skills or the qualities that machines won't learn, which is already somewhat of a controversial statement. And, you know, when I see people saying, oh, well, you know, I've been on GPT-4 or ChatGPT and it's not self-aware, it doesn't seem to be funny or have uh, social skills or whatever. Well, my my immediate reaction is neither are most humans, <laughs> right? So, so let's stay with that because we could, but most people we know don't seem to display a lot of self-awareness, humor, creativity, curiosity, etc. But if we're now serious, I think the way in which we can be self-aware through consciousness, etc. And I know consciousness is a big and intricate topic, etc. But you know, machines will never be consciously self-aware. Do you not think so? And no, I mean, well. The paradox with GPT is that it tells you that it's just a large language model and as an AI, it is not self-aware, which actually makes it quite self-aware because it's <laughs> self-aware of its lack of self-awareness. Whereas, you know, here we are, it's the opposite of humans. We all think we are self-aware and actually we don't act that way. But actually having the capacity to have broad and generalized awareness of what we feel, what we think and how others see us in real life interactions, right? Because we're not using data from 2001 or, oh, sorry, you know, I've been trained with data that goes up to September 22. So unfortunately, I don't know that Argentina won the World Cup. I had to throw that in just as a kind of natural thing. <laughs> uh, so self-awareness is one, curiosity, not superficial or narrow-minded curiosity, scratching, uh, crowdsourcing and integrating or synthesizing, but actually a deep desire to learn. It's it's unfortunate that the term deep learning is now associated with machines rather than humans, because we mm. are capable of learning deeply and enjoying kind of deep rather than surface learning. Uh, humility, I think, if anything, you know, the rise of machines and AI should be a humbling experience. Much like Freud said that the discovery of the unconscious was the third narcissistic wound. You know, first was uh, to realize that we're not the center of the universe. And the second one was to realize that the earth is, uh, you know, uh, round and small and etc. Right? So I think um, it should be humbling. And instead of being defensive or territorial or you know, self-proclaimed that we are smarter than machines. I think we should look for ways in which we can actually enhance or expand our intellect with the help of technology and machines. And then I think, um, you know, I think that uh, empathy, caring for others, I mean, that's the thing that machines won't be able to do. Of course, GPT can say, oh, I'm sorry that you didn't like my answer, or I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> sort of like a crowd pleaser or a, a neurotic person with imposter syndrome who is simultaneously some kind of insecure narcissism <laughs> that is narcissist that is trying to kind of impress you. But I think in an age where more and more of our interactions will depend on machines, there's going to be high demand for human validation, for human kindness, and we will crave human affection. Hmm. I find it fascinating as well. And I mean, obviously, this is just kind of a thought experiment. I don't, don't know if anyone would be able to test for this. 
But I find it fascinating at this point when there's so much emphasis on technology, hyperconnection, disembodied experience, the virtual world, the metaverse, AR, VR, the rest of it, that we are seeing a renaissance, or maybe in some instances, the first steps towards understanding what it means to have somatic ways of working, embodied processes to help us understand how we feel, think, respond to trauma. And in parallel to that, there's the psychological research being done around psychedelic experiences and consciousness. It seems like a really interesting time for all of these explorations to be happening. And I think there is perhaps something of a desire for us to understand, well, what does it mean if we are confronted by machines that are vastly more capable of understanding and passing data, like, you know, the folding proteins um, experiment that was done, and how limited we are as individuals, or even as a society, to understand complex things at scale, and how quickly and easily machines can be made to do yeah. things that we can't. Absolutely. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe those are the answers, right? You have mindfulness instead of uh, social media, uh, smoking weed instead of multitasking, <laughs> and psychedelics instead of the metaverse. And, there we you go. Know, <laughs> at the end, it might be a more pleasurable way to extinguish uh, our productivity and humanity <laughs> or find ourselves somewhere else. Yeah. So, so on that point, then, let's talk about synthetic relationships. I first came across this term through an interview between Tristan Harris and Aza Raskin on the podcast, Your Undivided Attention. It's really fascinating. And they were talking about how most of us talk about chatbots in that way. So a chatbot that's fairly limited, it replies with a certain constrained range of answers to whatever we put into the system. Now, what's interesting from their perspective was how the sophistication, increasing sophistication of chatbots could actually end up creating a scenario in the very short-term future where we're engaging in potentially emotionally more complex, at least from a projected perspective, emotionally more complex and nuanced interactions with machines that we can't then distinguish from other real humans. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in the movie Her, where everyone's on their little Bluetooth headsets and they're talking to their OS and she or he or it is talking to thousands, if not millions of individuals at the same time. Like, multitasking is not a problem for the AI. What do you think about the impact of this type of synthetic relationship on humans and on the fabric of society? Yeah, I mean, a few things come to mind. I think first, I cannot help that, you know, the clinical psychologist in me immediately would label these things as a perversion. That's the <laughs> traditional term, right? <laughs> but actually, you know, if, if they become the norm and they actually become adaptive in a world that is already overpopulated and we need we, we might need to stop to you know procreate to uh, save the planet i mean they could become normative and the opposite of that right and i'm not you know i'm not if, if there are any people with these hobbies listening to us uh, I'm, I'm not calling you perverts so i'm just <laughs> alluding to 1970s or 80s uh, psychiatric diagnostic qualifications many things of course were considered perversions or immoral mm, and mm. Uh, we will be shocked by that uh, today now on the upside i think you know a lot of people are lonely and maybe even without reaching her-like or Scarlett Johansson-like conversational or companionship qualities, they could alleviate some of the pain and suffering that people have when they're uh, lonely. I've actually remember, I remember seeing 
a company, a startup. A while back, some sometime between that movie coming out and and you know the the current ChatGPT craze, uh, they were actually selling sort of access to subscription based access to basically customize your ideal digital partner, wow. and you could actually give it a personality, and you could actually and you know and then I think in Japan this turned into a robot company as well. So imagine you know you have a human looking robot. Um, that could be your ideal, you know, partner, wife, or husband, or boyfriend, girlfriend, and you can actually give it the personality you want, and and actually regulate what percentage of time do you want her or him or it argue with you oh or God. tell you that you're right. I mean, I'm sure that like the perfection would include a little bit of, you know, painful interactions and disagreements, <laughs> right? So it seems a little bit more realistic, but you could also tweak it to a way where, you know, just basically agreeing with you all the time and, uh, and there's no friction or no discussion, or no argumentation. So, you know, we're definitely not very far from that. Could that improve uh, analog or real world relationships that people have today? Well, actually the bar is quite low. <laughs> in general. And so I think, you know, with that, I want to emphasize a point that is, I think, one of the most important points when we think about opportunities for AI, which is that the objective or ultimate goal should not be perfection. It should be better than the status quo. And in most instances, in most aspects of human affairs, the status quo is a very low bar. So I think, you know, we should be open to this idea that just like we created other tools throughout the history of civilization, we have the ability to create tools that we can outsource some of our thinking or that can help us think in more creative and better ways if we can get our act together. And that maybe that can enable process in different areas of life. And I think if we're open-minded to that idea, while of course alert to, you know, the bad news and the detrimental impacts that AI had had on us has had on us already. Mm. Then I think we're in a good position to make things better in the future. One final point is that you know I think if you eliminate the voice of Scarlett Johansson from that movie, people will find chat chatbots a lot less appealing, right? <laughs> so there's still a human there, and it's not just that the imagination is a very powerful instrument, but actually. Mm. Uh, she is embodying a real human there that makes uh, artificial intelligence a lot more appealing than it actually is. Yeah, she has a very sexy voice. <laughs> yeah, maybe she could do. Maybe she could enter in a partnership with ChatGPT five or six, and that could go from a hundred million to two hundred million users. Right? I mean, that's just crazy. And who who would be the guy? Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> Who's got a sexy voice? I I am um, I actually really like Antonio Banderas. Oh, okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking more Michael Caine. I have him on my GPS. Michael Caine. Actually, yeah. <laughs> that would be quite a fun, fun companion. Um, so I have a couple of questions that I want to ask you just to round yep. off the conversation. But is it all right if I read? There's a few. Yep. There's like a paragraph that you write about our kind of approach to creating a better future, and it's in the section that talks about how we have the opportunity to upgrade humanity. And you write. We have a significant chance to evolve as a species if we can capitalise on the AI revolution to make work more meaningful, unlock our potential, boost our understanding of ourselves and others and create a less biased, more rational and meaningful world. But there's a catch 
We will only be able to achieve this if we can first acknowledge the potential risks that AI amplifies are less desirable, more destructive and counterproductive tendencies. So I want to ask you, what tools or practices have been invaluable to you in your realm of gazillion tabs being open on your laptop, working with um, persuasive technology, etc.? Is there, is there a hack or one or two practices that you engage in routinely that support you? Oh, you know, simple ones, minimize the number of tabs that I have open. <laughs> so I keep it to, you know, two or three rather than 20 or 30. Um, I try to kind of carve out specific time or segments of the day where I won't check my email or I won't, you know, go uh, on social media or whatever that is and really have kind of some productivity time. I actually try to have some thinking time where it's like basically pen and paper and I just make notes and, I'm, you know, it feels very far removed from AI or the algorithms. Uh, and then I would say I also use the information, you know, I do pay attention to, for example, what my screen time is or, you know, when I start or when I log off, etc. And I try to, you know, self-monitor and use that to improve my habits, um, you know, and I think minimizing also the time of meetings and the time of meetings with a lot of people, et cetera, and optimizing how you connect to others. Like, you know, you know, with some people, sometimes a five minute call is best mm. uh, with others. It might be an email. Other people meet, need more time. Obviously meeting in person is not as easy as it was, but that's still, you know, there's no substitute for that. So wherever possible, I do that as well. And in all of this stuff that you do, because you, I mean, obviously I've, I've known you for many years and you are prolific and deep thinking and it's very easy to project perfection onto other people's lives but what I want to ask you to close with is when things are tough when it gets overwhelming how do you orient yourself towards life and wholeness when things get difficult oh I, I think I'm the worst on this you know it's like for me it's like I always say doing a book is a bit like running a marathon although mm. I've never run a marathon <laughs> and this this book in that sense is like three plus years in the making, sometimes, you know, being unable to finish a page. Sometimes you do 15, 20 pages. Sometimes you don't want to touch it and you don't touch it for six months. Mm. So it's always difficult for me to even say I'm very chaotic all over the place. But I think for me, it's really, if something is at least the center of your thoughts and you're thinking about it all the time, even when you have different experiences and you're changing, et cetera, it kind of feeds into that and advances your thinking. And that's, I think, how you go deeper. Uh, but for me, it's, it's really bursts of inspiration, which I know sounds like uh, the, the cockiest and most <laughs> self-indulgent things to do because the, the end product doesn't, doesn't signal that. But at least from the productivity standpoint, is like when something is really itching and burning and you have an impulsive desire to work on it and if you get to that stage you're not going to be distracted because you're not thinking about anything else you know time flies and i think the more of these moments you can create i think at least the more you can uh, keep producing and producing something that i think is intellectually meaningful to you mm. maybe not to others but at least to you <laughs> So I think if you're listening to this and you want to find out more, definitely pick up a copy of Thomas's book, I, Human, AI, Automation and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. Thomas, if people want to find out more, where are the best places to find you? Well, obviously the analog world after what we said. So <laughs> there's this little bar outside now. Uh, <laughs> my website, which is Dr. Thomas with no H, 
thomas.com. So D-R-T-O-M-A-S.com. Brilliant. Thomas, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you as always. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you've enjoyed the show, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen and leave a rating and a review. It really does mean the world to me to read your support, and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work creating, recording, and producing each episode. To find out more about my work, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources, and you can reach me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. Bye.